Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 34 in a few moments. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you remember the last time we were together, we titled our message, Our Supreme Goal in Life. And that was part one. This is part two of the same message because we weren't able to finish. Our time ran out. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today begins our 11th message in chapter 7. And have you noticed the silent theme that has been there, not just in chapter 7, but in the whole book of Corinthians. As a matter of fact, it's the silent theme of all of Scripture. Sometimes not so silent, but it's always there. It's like a thread that's woven into the tapestry of Scripture. It's a, it's a theme that the Corinthians themselves refused to learn. And it is that the believer must live a life that is not distracted from his surrender to Jesus Christ. He's to live daily attached to him and him only. You know the Corinthians, they were attached to Paul and Apollos and whatever else. They could see, touch, or feel, but they weren't living attached to Jesus Christ. They'd become distracted by other things. We are to be conduits through which God and his life can flow through, unhindered by fleshly Sin. It starts inwardly, looks upwardly, and then manifests itself outwardly. And that overtakes everything that we do. Paul noticeably picked this theme up, took it out of its silence, and brought it out in the forefront in chapter 6, verse 19 and verse 20, in a context that was dealing with immorality. And he brings them back to their purpose. And he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The word glorify means to, to properly esteem him, bring recognition to him in and through your body. That is our supreme purpose. And he brings it right in the midst of a subject of immorality. He continues this theme in the midst of the questions on whether I should marry or stay single in verses one through six. He says in verse seven, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now we said then and I'll say again now. Yes, Paul was speaking of the fact that he was single and he even reinforces that in what we're studying right now at the latter part of the chapter. But that's not all that he meant, and I don't think it had this much to do with what he meant. What he meant was that all men were like him. He says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in all things to be content. 
He was a man who had learned to be a bondservant. He had dealt with his, his will. He had dealt with his attitude. He had dealt with his agenda. He was just sold out to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. He said, if you'll live this way, whether you're single or whether you're married, your question would float out the window. And then all of a sudden your marriage would be what it's supposed to be. All of a sudden being single would be okay because your joy does not come from what you're doing or who you are. It comes from Jesus who lives in your life. Well, he continues it even after in verse 17, a woman believer has had her unbelieving husband desert her. And he says, after this has happened, and you know the pain that must have been there in her life. And he says in verse 17 of chapter seven, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. And what he was saying there is, listen, in other words, accept this as your God-given assignment. That's, that's tough words to somebody who's in pain, to somebody who's just walked away from them. Let God be glorified in your life regardless of your difficult circumstances that you now face. See it as God's assignment for you and allow him to live through you in this time. Keep your purpose, keep your focus. Don't let this pull you off track. He says again in verse 19 of chapter seven, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. You see, their agenda was their questions. His agenda was their focus upon Jesus Christ, whether single or whether married. In verse 29 through 31, he shows them not to be distracted by anything. Don't let your spouse distract you. Don't let your joys distract you. Don't let your sorrows distract you. Don't let the, the business, your business distract you. Don't let anything distract you from your surrendered heart towards God. And then in verse 32 that we looked at the last time, he says, but I want you to be free from concern. Don't let anything distract you. This has been the silent thread woven throughout the whole chapter. Verse 32, he uses the word concern when he says, I want you to be free from concern. That word concern, merino, is the word that has to do, it has a good meaning and a bad meaning. As we studied, the good side of it means to be full of care for something, to be concerned about something in a righteous way. But when you let that become a distraction, that's the bad side of it. And it, it brings up the idea of worry and anxiety, has the idea of being divided in your focus. You, you can't really look at Christ for, for other things that are pulling your focus off of him. Do you realize that there's a fine line between a godly burden and a fleshly distraction? Do you realize that? When a word like this can have such a good meaning, but also on the flip side have such a bad meaning, it needs to be looked at carefully. If your focus, for instance, in life has become ministry, or your focus has become missions, or your focus has become anything other than Jesus, you have a fleshly distraction. But when your focus is Christ, and it should always be Christ, then these things that are good become godly burdens, and God enables you in those things but you've got to be careful as a fine line between that which is anxiety and that which is rightful concern. Don't be distracted. Keep your focus. He says, I want you to be free from concern, implying the walk with Christ, whether you're single or whether you're married. Don't let anything hinder you in your surrender to Jesus. Nothing should interfere. In the context of chapter seven, being married or being single is not Paul's primary focus. It's theirs, but not his. It's that man lives undistracted in his surrender to Christ. Now, in light of this, he has a word for the single men reviewing last time. He says they are to live unwavering in their surrender to Christ. Verse 32 says, one who is unmarried 
is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he, masculine, may please the Lord. He has a word for the, the single men. And he says to them, you have no excuse for not living full, surrendered lives to Jesus Christ. Now, how would he know? He knew. He was a man and he was single. <laughs> he knew exactly what he was talking about, more so there than he would even on the other side. He knew this side of it. Marriage is not to be the single man's priority. And by the way, ma'am, if you're about to marry that guy and marriage is his priority or you've become his priority, you might want to think twice before marrying him because if Christ is not his priority now, what makes you think he's going to be his priority after you get married? To the single man, put your eyes on Jesus and live unwavering in your surrender to him. Then Paul says of the married man that he has the unavoidable concerns of life to deal with, must understand them, but not let them become distractions. In verse 33, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now the one who is married, heiress tense, doesn't mean just the state that he's in, it points back to the decision that he made. You choose to get married, you choose the responsibility that goes with it is what Paul's saying. It's a righteous responsibility. Certainly nothing wrong with it at all. He's not saying it's wrong to be married. He's just simply saying that a married man has other things to be concerned about and he's gonna be more apt to let these righteous and godly burdens become fleshly distractions if he's not careful. The phrase pleasing his wife uh, is an interesting phrase. It means to fit oneself to, to adjust to someone I don't know if I told you this or not, but when Diane and I first got married, she had made some meatloaf, or not made it, she cooked it. You don't make meatloaf, but she made some meat. Well, yeah, she put the ingredients in it and it called meatloaf, and it didn't turn out too well, and I was late coming home that night, and so when I walked in, I opened up the refrigerator door, and I said, all right, brownies. <laughs> and I began to learn this adjustment process, you know, that there's somebody else around the house. Matter of fact, we're gonna to get to the ladies today. Has she ever had to make an adjustment living with me? But I'm talking about my side of it right now. The married man has unavoidable things he's got to deal with. And they're not wrong at all. But don't let them become distractions. Let them be godly burdens. God will enable you with that when your focus is him. And certainly many married people can carry this right on through. But he's simply saying, you're gonna have a lot more to deal with than the single man in the sense that You've got somebody else now you're taking care of and later on children, etc. and it keeps on going. So to everyone, live undistracted lives. To single men, learn to live an unwavering life of surrender. To married man, learn to understand the unavoidable concerns and don't let them distract you. Just simply let them be the burdens God's placed on you and let God enable you in the midst of them. Now today we continue. And in verse 34, Paul speaks to the single woman. Live an unquestionable holy life before God. Now we've got a little problem with translation here. How many of you in here today have New American Standard? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you have King James? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> We're gonna have a little time with this and I have worked on this. Brother Spiros is grinning. I've worked on this because I didn't wanna confuse you. I could confuse you if I go too far into it. Let me, let me see if I can do it without losing you, all right? King James Version translates verse 34 this way. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. That's the main phrase we're gonna be dealing with. That's what's different. The rest of it's pretty much the same. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. 
But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, the word for difference there, translated by the King James translators, is the Greek word merizo. It's in the perfect indicative, which means this is a state that somebody is in, caused by something in the past, but it refers to a state that they're in. It means to be divided in something or to be different than something. Now, the problem is which one? Different or divided? And they're similar even in their meanings. It is interesting to me that in most of the cases, the translators now, bringing it into English, both King James and New American Standard, takes the same word, marizo, and translates it divided, except right here. The King James translators obviously chose to take it as the word difference, marizo as difference, and they incorporate it into verse 34 by saying that there's a difference between the married woman and the virgin. Speaking of the single and the married woman here, there's a difference also between a wife and a virgin is the sentence. But look what the New American Standard translators do. They turn it and they take the word marizo as divided and they translate it this way, and his interests are divided. And what they do, they take it back into verse 33. Instead of incorporating it into verse 34 as the King James translators do, the New American Standard translators take it and incorporate it back to verse 33. And so they're referring to the man who is, who is trying to deal with all the concerns now being married. So if you read it with verse 33, here's what it says, and it makes a lot of sense. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. They are divided. That's not a sinful thing. It just simply means you've got more categories now to deal with than you had before. And so he's saying it that way. Well, which translation are we going to go with? And to avoid confusing you, and I know I can because if no more intelligent than I am, I could confuse you. If I get confused, you're going to be confused. I'm just going to stay with the New American Standard, all right? Just to avoid confusion, and I know there are going to be those who say, you just missed it. Well, I just missed it. But I'm going to stay with the New American Standard because I saw more hands go up with that translation than I did the other one. As we said, the New American Standard translators carried it back into verse 33. And that phrase refers to the man who's divided in his interests. Now, then they bring up a brand new group of people that Paul is addressing, the single woman. He's dealt with the single man, the married man, now the single woman. And the woman who is unmarried, the, King, the New American Standard says, and the virgin is, un, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. It appears to me that Paul makes a distinction here among single women. The unmarried, which would include the widows and the divorced, if you go back to verse eight. Go back to verse eight of the chapter and I'll show you what I'm talking about, of chapter seven, if you weren't here. He uses the term unmarried again and he includes widows there. And the way, we, the way we interpreted that was that he spoke to the divorced and to the widows. It makes a lot of sense with the rest of what he says. He says in verse eight of chapter seven, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But here he takes in the New American Standard translators and they take it as the unmarried women, but also he adds the virgin. So here we have the, would include the divorced, the widowers and the single lady who's never been married, the word virgin can mean either one that's never had a sexual experience or one who's eligible for marriage. Either way, there's a definite distinction there of two groups that I can see of single women. Paul is saying of these single women that they live holy lives before God. The main thing is the plain thing. That's what he's driving at. 
that you, they're concerned about the Lord, he said. Now, this is the ideal. You know good and well that all the believers in Corinth that were, there were women that were single weren't concerned. So it becomes not only a statement, but it becomes a challenge to them that they live holy lives before God. To do this will require a total focus upon God. He says, and the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy, and then he says, both in body and spirit. Now the word holy is hagios, and it means set apart, but it also means devoted, consecrated, set apart unto God in your devotion and your consecration unto him. The fact that he says holy in body and also holy in spirit shows you that it takes a total focus. It, it's something that starts inwardly, but is manifested outwardly. You see, when the temptation to the flesh comes to the single woman, that's when she's gonna have to be strengthened inwardly so that she can be strengthened outwardly. And there will be temptation of the flesh. Back in verse eight, as we've read just a moment ago, he tells them it's good for them to stay as he is, which he means single. If you've been divorced or widowed, stay like, stay like I am. You're better off that way. He says, but he adds in verse nine, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn. In other words, there's gonna be some temptation here. The sexual experience was awakened during marriage and these people now are single again and now they're having temptations like they've never had before. And so they're gonna to have to be inwardly holy and outwardly holy, consecrated inwardly so they can be consecrated outwardly and that's the whole, that's the whole picture. If my focus is right inwardly and I'm looking upwardly, it'll show outwardly. Paul points that he knows that there'll be this temptation of the flesh. But he also adds the virgin to that. In verse 34, he, he does give the solution. He said, as she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. And I'm gonna simplify it. And I know probably, possibly I'm oversimplifying it, but what I think he's saying to the single women, and I believe he must include the divorced and the, the widowed and the single gal, he calls a virgin. And, and I'm not exactly sure if that means just eligible for marriage or having never had a sexual experience. I can't say for certain in that because the word has been used both ways. But he's saying to them, listen, be unaffected by the temptation around you. Continue to be concerned about the things of the Lord. Concerned, Miriam, now. Not worried, anxious, distracted, but in the righteous way, let it be a godly burden for you. And be holy both in body and in spirit. Be unquestionable, questionably holy before God. Let nothing let nothing distract you from your surrender to him. So now he's spoken to the single man, he's spoken to the married man, he's spoken to single women. And then finally he brings up the married woman. Be unceasingly faithful to your marriage responsibility. Look in verse 34. He says, but what, the last part of it, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now the same thing is said of the married woman that was said of the married man. Like the man, she is now concerned with the unavoidable concerns of her marriage. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. Things of the world do not mean sinful things. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying we live on planet Earth and when you get married, just like when the, on the man's side, he's got unavoidable responsibilities of taking care of you, etc. You have unavoidable responsibilities as long as you live on planet Earth. He doesn't mean the sinful world. He's talking about the real world that we live in. Be real in this thing. Understand you're gonna have some unavoidable concerns, ma'am, and you be unceasingly faithful to those responsibilities to your husband. 
One who is married is concerned about the things of the world. And like a man who is concerned with adjusting to her, she is concerned with adjusting to him. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And that word, it's the same exact phrase we saw with the man. And the reason I'm laughing, I'm thinking about how Diana has had to have mucho grace to adjust her life to me. I'm, I talk many times about the funny things about her, but I'll tell you, she could write a book, folks. Maybe when I die, she will, about how she's had to learn to adjust her life to me. I'm hard-headed, I'm independent. I mean, just do it. I mean, I don't wait for anybody else. I just do it, don't I, Tim? Just make a decision and go for it. And Diana, it just bless her heart. For years, she just had to hang on by the, by whatever she could hang on to in a decision. I, mean, I, I tell you, I, when I read this and thought about how unceasingly faithful Diana really has been in adjust, her adjustment to me, I thought, man, it's been a whole lot more than my faithfulness to be adjusting to her. What a job she's done. But that's your responsibility. That's what he's saying. You know, we're living in a day and age now where ladies are saying, hey, we have our rights. Well, you know you do legally, but in Christ you're a bondservant and you only have privileges and he tells you how you live. You don't tell him how you're gonna live. That's Christianity. That's why Christianity is hated by so many people. It goes against the grain of the flesh. And he says to that married woman, now you pay attention to your responsibility. They're unavoidable. You make those adjustments to your husband, but don't let any of these things detract you. May they be godly burdens. Keep your focus on Christ. Then he will enable you to do that. You see, that's the way it works. You know, why can't we see this? Why can't we study scripture and find out that if we do it God's way, it's not contradictory to anything he's commanded and given. It's complimentary. It's always that way. You don't live for each other. You live for him. Then he and you will bind the two of you together. And so for the married woman, yes, you've got responsibilities. When you start thinking about your rights, you've just become distracted and your focus is no longer right and your family is in jeopardy. Same thing with the man. So the key here again is to live unhindered and undistracted from what God is wanting to do in your life. But notice, being undistracted is still the bottom line of everything he said. He's spoken to the single man. He spoke to the married man. He's spoken to the single women and he's spoken to the married women. And again, his bottom line thought, the theme that is so clear is that you'd be undistracted. And if you're not convinced, look at verse 35. To me, it's as clear as a bell in verse 35. He shows this has been his main thought. Verse 35, and this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure, listen, undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's what he's been saying all along. And he, let's take it phrase by phrase. He says, and this I say for your own benefit. The word benefit is the word sin pharaoh. It comes from two Greek words, the word seen together, that intimate together. And the word pharaoh, which means to bring. To bring things together. What does anxiety do? It divides things and shatters them. What, does, what has Paul been doing? He said, I've been bringing things together, putting them together so that it would be advantageous to you spiritually in your walk. Paul has been bringing together spiritual thoughts that would be to their spiritual and eternal advantage. 
He does not have a grudge against somebody who's married. And I know sometimes when you read his thoughts, you say, good night, Paul. Give us a break. I mean, he keeps saying, be single, stay as I am. He doesn't have a, he, that's what he's, what he's doing. But what he's doing is he's writing to the Corinthian believers who live in the most pagan city in the world at that time. And he is a single man and he says to them things that he knows will benefit them. He tries to pull things together for them so that they can have the right direction. He doesn't have a grudge against somebody who's married. He just wants to make sure if you're married, you're not, undistracted, you're not distracted in your walk with Christ. He personally feels that being single accomplishes that best. You know, after the service last week, or last time I was with you, Brother Lewis Carter came down to me and said, I want to tell you something. He said, the missionaries I've worked with on the foreign fields have discovered something. The married missionaries have found many times in their burden and their zeal to do things for the Lord that they're hindered because of obvious responsibilities. Not sinful things at all. But he said the single missionaries have just gone completely wide open because they're not hindered by that. And he said, "Can wonder if you could bring that out in a service. And I didn't know if I could or not, but I just did. That's what Paul is saying. I'm just saying these things, he says, for your benefit. I'm just trying to pull things together for you so that you'll, you can see the advantage, how it could help you in your Christian walk. I'm not saying it's wrong to get married, Paul would say. But he says, I'm just trying to show you some things, things that you need to think about. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. Now the word to put, epivalo, is the word that means to throw over, epi, over, like that intensifier and balo to cast, to throw over. You remember when Scott Brown was singing here in our church one time, I don't know what the name of the song was. I don't think it was the wild horse. It might've been the brand of the cross or something. He had his lariat up here, rope and he said, Wayne, come on here and stand right down here. And I, I remember walking down to somewhere along the bottom of the steps and all of a sudden this lariat about knocks me over when he ropes me from the pulpit. That is exactly the word epivalo, to take a rope and to cast a noose around you and restrain you. Paul says, I'm not doing this for that. I'm not trying to do that. The word for uh, restrain there is the word brokos. It means a snare. And again, like a noose around one's neck. I don't want to throw a noose around your neck. When I make statements and say it's better to be single, I think because I'm single, I'm not trying to throw a noose around your neck. I'm saying things to pull it together to make it more advantageous for you to walk in your surrender to Christ. That's all I'm saying with what Paul would say. It has the idea of putting somebody into bondage like legalism does. You see, you can take your opinion and legalistically put everybody under the bondage to your opinion. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. Now some things here, not his opinion, some of these things here, any opinion he gives is sanctified opinion, but there's some things here just flat out are clear as a bell. But he says, when I, when I make some of the statements I make, he said, I'm not trying to put you under some legalistic bondage to what I think. I'm not doing that at all. Legalism does that. When you take what you desire for somebody else and you put it as a law over them. You know, one of the things that I've discovered here or, or had in my heart when I came here was to give you the freedom to be what God wants you to be. And I want to thank you for you giving me the freedom what God has called me to be. And that's the way it's supposed to work. But don't take a legalistic opinion that's not a command from God and take it and use it to 
rope somebody else down because you think the way you think, you see. But tell them what you tell them so to be advantageous to their Christian walk. Proverbs 7, 21 talks about, he says, with her many persuasions, she entices him, talking about the adulterous woman. With her flattering lips, she seduces him, puts him in under her spell, under her bondage. Paul said, I'm not doing that. It's the same thought. Proverbs 22, 24 says, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Why? Verse 25, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. You know, I, I, over the years, I try to tell Stephen especially, Stephen, I love my boy, but I've had to tell, because I kind of come out of the same mold, and I said, Stephen, be careful who you associate with. It's going to have an effect on you. But I forgot sometimes about suggesting that even to Diana. In one, one church we, we served, there was a lady who would call her up almost every single day. I didn't know that because I was gone. I was in church recreation at the time. I was never home. 16 hours a day, I was at the church. And so she, she was at home and this lady would call her very negative and critical and very hot-tempered in business meetings. Just love God. And she'd call Diana all the time. I didn't know she was calling her. Well, after about six weeks, Diana became the most critical. I mean, Diana's not that way. She ain't got a critical bone in her body that I've known. All of a sudden, she became critical and negative and I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? And this woman that had been calling her had been putting her up under a spell of her own way of thinking. And until Diana saw it, she didn't even realize she was that way. And I said, next time she calls, just say, uh -uh, excuse me, I've got to go. I don't want to hear this. Hang up. <laughs> and she did. Diana did. Y'all don't know Diana very well. Diana did. And buddy, all of a sudden, she changed and came right back to what, being what she's supposed to be. Let me ask you a question. Whose opinion are you up under today? Who's put their spell on you? They've taken their own opinion and they've thrown it around you. That's not what Paul does. Paul's a precious apostle of God. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Nothing he says is to put you under a legalistic bondage to what he might think because he's a single man. But what he does say, you better listen to, because the Holy Spirit of God authors this and he's got wisdom so it'll help you in your Christian walk. Well, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying, you asked me, I answered you, but you must do in some of these areas, what God tells you to do. Some of them are clear, some of them aren't. You are not to let anything distract you in your surrender to him. The last part of the verse, verse 35, says, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. The word seemly is the word F, comes from the word F, which means well or good, and schema, which means external condition, fashion. In other words, it's an appearance on the outside. Uh, here, it would be character, whatever. But Paul here, in this particular passage, this word means more than the outward appearance. It means the inner motivation for that outward appearance. You see, Corinth was a pagan place. Remember, back in chapter one, he said, the testimony of God has been confirmed in you. But the problem was it had never been confirmed through them. So Paul keeps bringing them back to that truth. Get back attached to Christ so that on the outside, people will look at you and know that on the inside, you live a surrendered walk with Jesus Christ. Don't let things distract you. You can't live outwardly until you're living inwardly. It starts inward. And so the word here means more than just what's on the outside. It means that which comes as a result of what's on the inside of your life. All that Paul has said about marriage and singleness, all of this has been for their profit, for their benefit. And the word 
uh, there it means the idea of their own advantageousness and it's to make an advantage for you. That's all he's done. Don't throw a rock at the Apostle Paul. He's just trying to help these Corinthians get their walk right with God. He's more concerned about their surrender to Christ than he is being single or being married. That's been his underlining theme all the way, as we've said. And then he says in the last phrase, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And this has been the foundation of all the answers that Paul has given. Don't be distracted in your devotion to the Lord, married or single. The word undistracted is the word that means ah without, and then the word peris, perispao, which means to be drawn away towards someone or something. Let me give you an idea of that. You're focused on something, but something draws your attention over here. That's what the idea means, that you not be undistracted. When I was in elementary school, my report cards were always marked with, he doesn't pay attention in class. That was for six years of my elementary adventure. The problem was they set me next to a window. You don't take kids like me and put them next to a window because anything I saw outside the window pulled my attention off the focus to the teacher and put it on something that's outside. That's the word there. I don't want you to be distracted. I want you to be undistracted without being drawn off, you see. That's what he's been saying. And then he says undistracted, to secure undistracted devotion. The word devotion is a beautiful word, if I can say it right. It's f procedros. Uh, procedros is the word that means constant, a constant attendant. F means a good one or as an intensive. Constantly attending to somebody. I have two grandmothers, of course, as most of us have. And some of us have some step-grandmothers, but my dad's mom was a little different. My mom's mom, son, she was wonderful. Matter of fact, if you won't see my personality, you'd have to know her. When, when you get to heaven, you'll get to meet her. You'll meet my mother and you'll say, yep, I've met Wayne. I'm right now, and Stephanie, my daughter, comes right in that same type of personality. That's the way. Stephen has more of his mama's temperament, has a lot of my personality, but Stephanie kind of carries that chain right on. And my mama's mom was one of the funniest people ever lived. And one night she was downstairs, and mom, she, when we lived in a very small little matchbox house, it was two-story, but it was small in Virginia, and one night she was laying there in bed and she said, Myrtle, Myrtle. My mama came running out of, out of the upstairs and she had on, had on a long nightgown, had on uh, socks because it was cold in the wintertime and it was on wood floors. And she hit that top step and I mean bounced all the way down those steps and right up against that door and <laughs> like to killed her. And she got into my grandmother's room. She said, what's wrong? She said, and her grandmother, her mother rather was laughing so hard. She said, I don't know, I forgot. <laughs> I got so tickled you falling down the steps. That's the way she was. Don't help me, we don't need any help. But my mother loved her so much that she spent years of just unceasing devotion in attending to her mom. Even though her mom would try to reject it and say, listen, don't fool with me. Go on, you got other things to do. Mother couldn't stand it. She brought her to her house and my grandmother lived there until she died. It was one of the greatest joys I remember as a young person growing up. I remember I had the measles when, she, when my grandmother died and I had to stay home. I couldn't even go to the funeral. And how I wept because of what a precious lady she was. And my mother loved her so much that she lived with unceasing devotion to attend her mama that she loved. That's the word. He said, I want this undistracted devotion to where every day of your life, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'm here to serve you. As married person or single person, that is never to stop 
Because if it does, go back to chapter 3, verse 13, you'll discover it's going to cost you one day when you stand before God and the rewards aren't there. Paul says, listen, this is right side up living. This is normal Christianity. Nothing distracting you. You live every day to see how you can accommodate and how you can give constant attending service to the one who saved you. I want that to be undistracted in your life, Paul says. Nothing, nothing is to distract us. So to the single man, the married man, the single woman, the married man, it's all the same thing. You're going to have more responsibility if you get married. Paul says it from a single perspective, but he says, I want to tell you, don't let that distract you. Accept it, understand it, but keep your focus on Christ because it's a godly burden if you do it then or it becomes a fleshly distraction if you take your eyes and are drawn away from him. You see, when one lives inwardly surrendered, looking upwardly, saying yes, it's always manifested outwardly. It's always that way. When I'm loving God inwardly, it's going to show in my loving you outwardly. You see, that's the way it works. You can't love your wife until you love God. You don't love your wife so you can love God. You don't serve your wife so you can serve God. No, you serve God so you can serve your wife. You love God so you can love your wife. It starts inwardly. Then it moves outwardly. Fotis Romeos, which is our missionary from AMG in Greece, sent me an email and gave me an illustration. I couldn't wait to use it because it fits right here. He speaks of a man by the name of John Blanchard, but it's not the John Blanchard from England that most of us know. It simply has to, happens to have his name. As far as I know, it's not him. But let me just read you the story, and I think you'll catch the point. If it's inward and if it's upward, it'll be outward. John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform, and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis, Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. Now listen. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 o'clock p.m. at the Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 o'clock he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved but whose face he had never seen. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she was like springtime coming alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. 
As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, soldier, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. <laughs> she was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked with, under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. There she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. It's not difficult to understand and admire Miss Maynell's wisdom. Now listen, the true nature of a heart is seen in its response to the unattractive. A great philosopher once wrote, tell me who you love and I will tell you who you are. And Paul would say, Amen. You love Jesus and your love is going to be so different to your family, to your friends and whoever else. Single married doesn't matter that the world will stop and realize who and what you are. That's the theme of chapter seven. Not whether you're single or whether you're married, but whether or not you're living undistracted in your focus on Jesus Christ. Inwardly, upwardly, totally radically different, outwardly. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 